Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see y'all. I want to say first and foremost, on behalf of me and Stacy, that we love our Foundry family. We love y'all. And this is an interesting thing, you know, because we've only lived in Mississippi almost two years now. You think, well, how could you love someone so passionately and deeply? And I think about Ben, actually, our, our little three-year-old son. He wakes up every morning not knowing what day it is, kind of like Elijah, and he's like, is it, is it school day today? We're like, no, buddy, it's church day. You know what he says? Yes! Yes! I get to punch Wook, and I get to play the drums. He mentioned that this morning, Mark. And, but here's the thing about being a Christian, is that the love of God can flood our hearts for complete strangers. Now, we're not strangers anymore, but like in an instant, in a moment, when we move to Haiti, a completely foreign place with foreign food and language and culture, and like we fall in love with people immediately, not because of anything inside of ourselves, but because the Holy Spirit can deposit God's love for people inside of us. So this is an amazing concept. So all that to say, we love y'all. Know that you're loved. One of the greatest lies of the enemy and the deceiver is that you're not loved. Well, you are loved. And Jesus shares his love for other people with us. It's one of his favorite things to share with us. So I just wanted to share that right off the beginning. We love you guys, and we're thankful for you guys. And we're thankful that we are right at home here with our family, and especially our McCartney Tuesday night foundry group, right? Okay. <laughs> right. A little bit of disdain there. So we've been talking about uh, Genesis, and it's not often that I do this, but I went to Elijah and said, can I preach in this series? We've been talking about Joseph and Genesis. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever invited myself to preach anywhere at any time. Uh, but I love talking about the book of Genesis. It's one of my favorite books of scripture. And I want to talk about where the story of Joseph takes place within the bigger scope of the book as a whole. Because if you think about it for a moment, the story of Genesis and what Elijah's been talking about, about reconciliation and his family and God maturing Joseph through a lifelong process of in the pit and out of the pit and back into the pit and going from hatred and complex relationships with his brothers who betrayed him to weeping love for his brothers and reconciliation. What does all that have to do with like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? In Genesis chapter one. And what does that have to do with Genesis chapter six where we hear about giants and angels coming down and marrying women? And what does that have to do with Noah and the flood? Well, as a single book of scripture, they all have everything to do with each other. And that's what I wanted to try to do is frame or contextualize these stories about Joseph that Elijah's been talking about within the greater scope of the book of Genesis. That's kind of what we're going to do today. But before we get to that, I want to frame it up just a little bit more by way of an introduction. I want to say this, that salvation, that is what it is to be saved, you know, almost every week. Elijah, at the end of his sermon, stands up and says, if there's anyone here who isn't reconciled with God, if there's anyone here who is at odds with God or in rebellion against God or resisting the truth of God's love, just, we got our heads bowed, just slip up your hand. We want to pray for you. If you want to reconcile with him, what we're talking about is conversion. What we're talking about is salvation and being saved. But if you think about it for a moment, this, this stuff of salvation is pretty complicated. It's pretty complex. Now, a lot of you who know me, you know that I work at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Got to get that plug in every time I have an opportunity. And we have entire departments, Owen, dedicated 
to thinking and talking about what it means to be saved. I mean, there's hundreds, probably thousands of people around the world, even today, doing doctoral research on this question of Christian salvation, what it is from a biblical perspective. And in in a lot of ways, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian, is very, very simple in, in so many ways. Like, it means being reconciled with God, loving God, obeying God, being faithful to God. And you know what's funny? I want to pause here for a minute and say, I was having a conversation with actually a family member one time, and they're not, they're not a Christian at all, and it's a cousin. And I said, hey, you know, you should check out Jesus in the most contextualized way I could do that. And she said, I love Jesus. Jesus is the man. I love him. He's fantastic. And she kept using this word love. I love him. And I said, no, you don't. What do you mean? I started listing out all the direct rebellion to commands of Jesus in Scripture that she's living in right now. Well, the guy that you're living with, is he your husband? No. Well, you don't love him then. Because John tells us in the New Testament that if you love Jesus, you obey what he says. You can't live in open rebellion against him and say that you love him at the same time. just doesn't work that way. So... Being saved in a real simple sense is not just loving Jesus and loving others, it's obeying Jesus and having good, firm faith, understanding and believing in the Trinity and believing in the virgin birth and believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So in a lot of ways, salvation is really simple, but in some ways, it's really, really complicated. Let me me take this one step further and demonstrate how it's complicated. When we think about Scripture, there's a lot of different ways in the Bible that Paul and Jesus and the New Testament writers and Old Testament writers describe salvation using metaphors. They use metaphors. So here's one metaphor. And if we're in a seminary classroom and we're studying, does anyone know the, the technical term for the study of salvation? I know Owen knows it. Does anyone else know it? You're in seminary, yeah. Soteriology, the study of salvation. So if you're in a, in a soteriology class, we would talk about one of the metaphors being the forensic metaphor or the judicial metaphor for salvation. What does this mean? That if we're Christians, we've been forgiven of our sins. Forgiveness, right? That's one way of thinking about salvation. You tracking with me? Here's another metaphor. To be saved is to be adopted into God's family, That's the familial metaphor, right? So in some ways, salvation is having your sins forgiven. In other ways, it's like joining God's great big family. Yet there's more metaphors still. So we have the forensic metaphor. We have the familial metaphor. We also have the kingdom metaphor, right? To be saved is to be a citizen in God's kingdom. It's another way of thinking about what it means to be saved. There's more still. Another one is what we call the nuptial metaphor. What does that word nuptial mean, Brooke and Mason? What does that mean? Shout it out. The marriage metaphor, right? If you're a Christian, you're a member of the body of Christ who is the bride of Christ, right? You're married to Jesus. It's like Jesus is your husband. Does that make sense? So we have the forensic metaphor. We have the familial metaphor, adopted. We have kingdom metaphor, citizens in the kingdom, familial metaphor, bride of Christ. There's more still. The new creation metaphor, right? New birth. Born again, that's yet another metaphor. So my point is, salvation is complicated. There's another way that we can talk about the complexity of salvation, uh, but I want to bring this down to Genesis, and I want to tie it up to what we've been talking about in the story of Joseph in the latter half of the book, and that we can put this much, much more simply 
than the metaphor, super complex, right? And we can do it by talking about prepositions. What's a preposition? Anyone here study linguistics other than Mason? Okay, a little bit of linguistics. Any, any English teachers, elementary school English teachers in the room? You can raise your hand. You have to be sure. Okay, a couple in the back. A, what, a preposition is like, it, it, there are these little connecting words that s- describes relationships between nouns. So someone shout out to me an example of a preposition. Oh, wow, you guys are good. So of, and they, by the way, they, should, they say you should never end a sentence with a, with a preposition at. Okay. Where are you at, right? Which is, by the way, not technically a rule. You can end a sentence in a preposition because you can do whatever you want with language. (laughs) When it comes to language, if people understand what you're saying, it works and you can do it. That's just the reality of it. So at, with, of, by, about, from, to, these are all. So when we think about salvation, we can talk about the different dynamics of what it means to be saved using prepositions. So here's what I mean. We can talk about what it means to be saved by talking about what God does for us, right? What does God do for us when we're saved? Well, a lot of things. One of the simplest things that's very close in our minds and in our hearts is he forgives our sins. Now, think for a moment about the story of Joseph. Are there things that God did for Joseph in rescuing him? Yeah, he got him out of a pit a couple of times, right? Just something that God did for Joseph, just like he does things for us. Did you know God wants to do stuff for you? The sovereign, uncreated, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient creator of the universe wants to do things for you. Talking to people about moving, buying houses, selling houses, now is not a great time to do that because even if you sell your house more than what it's worth, you got to buy a house for more than what it's worth, and so you kind of break even on that. But you know, God wants to solve those problems for us, just like he wants to solve the problems for Joseph. So salvation, what God does for us, he forgives our sins. Also, he transfers us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. He changes our status. But let's add another preposition to think about what it means to be saved. God doesn't just do things for us. He also does things, two words starts with an I and ends with N. Yeah, in us, right? He forgives our sins, but he also transforms us from the inside. He gives us a radical transformation of our very nature. So salvation isn't just about what God does for us. And by the way, as American Christians, that tends to be what we focus on is what God does for us in salvation. But I will say, that's just the very beginning. The very beginning is the forgiveness of sins. The rest of the gospel is what we Wesleyans call the best of the gospel. Let me, let me put this into further context still. Um, Mardi Gras is this week, right? Some of y'all didn't, it's not this week? Elijah doesn't know. He doesn't celebrate Mardi Gras, right? He's so righteous. Mardi Gras. So what does Mardi Gras mean in French? Fat Tuesday. Tuesday. Actually, it means Tuesday fat. It's interesting. You know, they put the adjectives after. Anyway, okay, (laughs) language. Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday starts the Lent season, which is the season of Easter. It's the weeks leading up to Easter. And especially in Roman Catholic traditions, they fast, and it's a good idea. I've done this before. And the reason we fast is we're depriving ourselves to enter into and join into the suffering of Jesus as he headed towards the cross. 
You know, he tells us we have to take up our cross too. And so we deprive ourselves to enter into that suffering with our Lord, to go deeper so that we can better appreciate what he went through on our behalf and then have a great big celebration on Easter Sunday. So that Wednesday starts the fasting, right? Fasting from all kinds of stuff. You can't have, uh, anyone here come from a Roman Catholic background? Okay, what do we fast from, Roman Catholics, during the Lenten season in particular? What's the main thing? Yeah, meat. But of course, as some people say, well, fish is still on the menu, and of course you can eat meat on some, but meat. Okay, so we're not going to get to eat any beef brisket for the next seven weeks. You know, it's going to be a long time, Cody. No ribs, no beef brisket, no barbecue. And so what do you, and starting on Wednesday, so what do you do on Tuesday? <laughs> did you, Chris, did you say get fat? Oh, eat the fat. What do you, you indulge, because this is your last chance, right? You indulge in that desire that you're going to deprive yourself from. But it's not just food. It's also sin that you're supposed to be abstaining from. The sins that so satisfy the flesh. Starting on Wednesday, I'm no longer going to lie. I'm no longer going to cheat. I'm no longer going to steal. I'm no longer going to fornicate. I'm no longer going to X, Y, and Z until Easter. And then I'm going to start back up again, right? And, and this is a fundamental, fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Because when we become Christians, what God does in us, right? He doesn't just change our status where we have forgiveness of sins, but he changes our very desires. He gives us holy and good desires that chase away destructive desires. If you still desire sinful things that destroy you, then you're not living in the full life of Christ. Salvation isn't just about what God does in us, but also about what God does, what's the T word? Oh, excuse me, I messed that up. Not just what God does for us, but what God does in us. Did Jesus desire to indulge the flesh? And if the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ and he lives in us, but we still desire to indulge the flesh, there's something wrong. That's not the full life of Jesus. Now, this, the transformation of our desires. I was talking to a witch doctor in Haiti once, and I said, why don't you become a Christian? And you're picturing a guy with like a bone in his nose and pain on his face and like long dreadlocks probably. This guy's dressed like flat-out gangster, right? Big gold chain and the whole, the whole nine. Become a Christian. He knows what the gospel is. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He knows that he raised from the dead. He knows that he can forgive sins. He knows that all this, he knows the gospel. In fact, this particular witch doctor went to seminary. You know, just because someone has all the marks doesn't mean that the internal fruit is there, right? Keep that in mind. I said, well, why don't you want to become a Christian? He says, I know I got to give up all the stuff I love. You hear that language? I got to give up the stuff I love. He said, I love to gamble. I love women. I love to get drunk. I love to smoke. I love to love to love to start listening to all these things. I said, man, you've misunderstood the gospel. He says, what do you mean? I don't have to give up those things? I said, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I said, when you become a Christian, yes, you have to give up those things, but God takes those desires away, and he replaces them with holy desires. Do you want that this morning? I do. Now, temptation never goes away. We know that. But did you know that the God that we serve can transform radically our very nature so that what we want, what we're hungry for, changes? That's pretty powerful. 
Salvation's not just what God does for us, but also what he does in us. Now, let's go back to Joseph for a minute. Did God do things for Joseph? Yes, got him out of a pit. Did God do things in Joseph? Oh, we see this. We see this in the story that Elijah preached on last week, especially, right? At the beginning of Joseph's story, he's this immature guy, has this dream, and is like, brothers, bow to me, you know? And it's, it's terrible. If this guy, in this form of who he is, comes to power, it's going to be a mess. And God's got a work to do in Joseph. And the rest of the story is the story of God disciplining Joseph, shaping him on the inside into what God always intended him to to be. And we see this huge difference between Joseph with the coat of many colors in the beginning of the story to Joseph before his brothers at the very end, right? Remember the scene? It's one of the most touching scenes in scripture that he walked us through where his brothers appear before him and he doesn't rec- they don't recognize him. Do you love this? That, that's, that's not just an added detail of the text. He's changed so much they don't recognize him. God can change us so that we're so different today from the person that we were in high school for me that people that knew me so well, my brothers, they look at him and don't know who he is. Do you want that? I want it. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And he's harsh with them. They go back to their dad and they said, man, he was so brutal on us. Brutal. He was, that's French for brutal. It's just more fun to say. <laughs> say it with me. Brutal. Doesn't it sound so good? He was brutal with us. He was harsh with them in their city. Go get your brother. And he tricks him. And then he sends him away. And he went into his room and he wept. There's, it's complicated, right? It's changed. If he hasn't changed, he's sending him to the pit. I'm going to do to you what you did to me. Can he send him to a pit? Sure can. He sent one of them to the pit, right? Locked him up. But you know what the gospel is? Not doing to other people what they did to you. And you know that's our immediate human reaction when we have the opportunity? is to do to other people what they did to us. Isn't it so satisfying watching movies like The Equalizer and The Count of Monte Cristo, revenge stories? It's not Christian at all. I'm so glad Jesus didn't do to me what I did to him. Or I would be hanging on a cross, you know. Joseph has changed. God's done a work, not just for him, but he's also done a work in him. Now, here's the kicker. One step further. Salvation is not simply what God does for us and in us, but also through us. We have a horrible habit as human beings with a selfish nature of thinking that our salvation and what God is doing for us and in us is all about us. It's not. It's not about you. You know all this pit business that Joseph's been going through and all the suffering that he's been going through? Does God have a plan for him and is God making him holy? Is God shaping his life? Is God teaching him and training? Yes, he's doing all these things, but he's doing this because there's hundreds of thousands of people who need saved. This is the kicker of the story. It's not about Joseph. 
Our verse for this morning is Genesis 50, verses 19 to 20, and it says this. Elijah, Genesis is just before Exodus. It's in the Old Testament. That didn't get very many laughs. They love you. You you guys know that I work with him every day, right? You get him once a week. I get him every day. Okay. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for for am I in God's place? Now, I'm going to give you a little hint at something that we're going to talk about here in a minute. When he says that, several times that phrase, don't be afraid, shows up in Genesis, but it's always on the mouth of God. But this time it's Joseph who says it. When God changes us, our language looks like God's language, right? We start to sound like God sounds. And one of the things he says is, don't be afraid. Our job as Christians is not to create more fear in the world. We got enough fear, Ukraine, Russia, geopolitics, economy, inflation. We are messengers of peace. We come with a message that says we serve a sovereign God who is the orchestrator of all events in history. Do you like the president? I don't, but I'm not scared because I know God's in control. Is the bank account suffering right now? It is, but don't be afraid because we serve a sovereign God. Don't be, be like Joseph. Tell people not to be afraid. And you know why the world wants us to be afraid, by the way? Because when we're scared, they can manipulate us. That's why. If we're scared, they can shape us and form us and trick us and move us from this camp to this camp and serve their purposes. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? And by the way, another cool thing in this very, I think you did two chapters last week. I'm doing two verses this week. So that's, that's not good or bad. I'm just pointing it out. It's interesting, right? So in the beginning of the book of Genesis, the big failure that Adam and Eve is that they put themselves in the place of God. And Joseph is being set up in contrast to that example, right? Adam and Eve go, oh yeah, we can be like God. And Joseph goes, I'm not in God's place. We'll we'll look more at that here in a minute. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people Alive. What's he referring to? Joseph single-handedly saved the Egyptian people, the biggest, most prosperous nation in history at that time. All of Joseph's experiences were for God's purposes of getting him to a place of power where he could be influential, so to save people. Joseph's pit experience, we've talked a lot about How many of us have been in and out of the pit over the course of our lives? All of us have, and that God meets us there, and that God wants to heal us, so he wants to heal our damaged emotions. He wants to meet us there and reconcile us with other people. And as a church, as an American church especially, we fall into the fatal trap of stopping right there. Hallelujah, therapeutic Christianity. Jesus fixed my stuff, and now I feel better. I'm here to tell you this morning, no. Your salvation is not about you. What God does for you is not about you. What God does in you is not about you. All that stuff is because he has a purpose for you to save the lives of many. And his therapeutic work in our lives is to get us healthy because he's got an army to build. An army to build. And so many of us, And I fall into this trap too because we're human. We're selfish. We think it's all about us. We can't see past the nose on our own face. We wallow in our therapeutic Christianity. God's meeting me in my pain and my woundedness. 
That's exactly what we sound like. God's just doing a deeper work in me right now. I'm dating Jesus. It's like, that's not what the gospel's about. Jesus didn't hang on the cross because he had wounded emotions. He hung on the cross because there were a lot of people to be rescued. All this stuff that Joseph goes through is because God has a purpose. And let me say, that reshapes the, the suffering, doesn't it? When you're in and out of that pit for years and years and years, when you go, this is all for a purpose. This is all for a purpose. It says God has a job for you to do. It gives us more patience to endure, I think. And by the way, I will add one more dynamic to this, and that is that when God's doing his work through us, it is also therapeutic. You don't wait till you're all healed up to go and get to work. You know what physical therapy is, right? Move. What's the worst thing you can do for a broken down, busted up body? Sit still. What's the worst thing you can do for a broken down, busted up soul? Sit still. You gotta move. And is it gonna hurt when you move? Yeah. The biggest sanctifying aspect of my life to this day was ministering in a place like Haiti. Can you imagine if I said, I'm not going until God's done his therapeutic work in me? He did his therapeutic work in me and through me all at once. We gotta move as a church. Jesus was always on the move in his ministry. Did you ever notice that when you read his story? It's like, oh man, what town is he in now? Town to town to town to town to town. Are you moving this morning? Have you moved this week? You go, well, I don't know where to go. He'll tell you. Ask him to tell you where he wants you to go, to who he wants you to go to. All right, I got four minutes left. Let me make one more change, and I'll conclude with this. The book of Genesis as a whole. Now that I'm through Elijah, this is a side note. We talk about homiletics and preaching, and the introduction's over. <laughs> the book of Genesis is a single book with a single theme cover to cover. Every book of the Bible is like this. And it kind of seems weird because you have all these loosely connected stories, right? And you think, well, they don't really have a lot to do with each other. Yes, they do. They have everything to do with each other. And what is the book of Genesis all about? It's about this one thing called the sovereignty of God, God's unlimited power, his eternal power. And we see it in Genesis chapter 1, with the creation of the heavens and earth, and we see it in Genesis chapter 50, with working through a busted up family to redeem the entire cosmos. Not, not just to redeem Egypt. Remember, this is Jesus' family. This is one of the most dysfunctional families I've ever seen. Like, even if you were to watch, I've never watched it, but I've heard about Jerry Springer, and you hear the, about these dysfunctional families where there's all kinds of, like, stuff going on. Well, Never do you see on that show people where you have people murdering their siblings. That's a whole nother level, right? This is the family of Jesus through whom God is going to use to save the entire world, not just the Egyptians. He's got a work to do. And guess what? That's our family too, right? And we sit in this room and we look around and we go, really? Like the whole world depends on Mason and Brooke? Yep. Yeah, good grief, we're in trouble. The whole world depends on Mike McCarty and Justin and the Coxes and... Yes. That's not possible. You're right. But with God, all things are possible. 
And that's the point of Genesis, the sovereignty of God, that God is even able to use a messed up family like this to redeem the entire universe. And God can use up you. He doesn't just want to reconcile you to your brothers and your people and your friends, the people that hurt you and your abusers. He wants to redeem the whole world. And he wants to use those things to accomplish that. So creation account. Let me lay this out real quick. Genesis 1. How does he create? He goes, oh man, this is going to be good. Let there be light. And there was this big battle and there was all these all this fighting and armies and spiritual angels and demons that were resisting him, but eventually God won the battle and there was light. Is that how it goes? It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, that's pretty good. And what he means by that's good is that's what I intended it to be. Pause on that for a minute. When God does a work, he doesn't stop until it's done, and when it's done, it's what he always intended it to be you know that your life can end up in such a way that it's what God always intended it to be, free from all its brokenness and corruption and decay? And I'll step back and go, that's good. And then day two, let there be a firmament, a space. And it was, and it was good. Day three, let there be dry land. And there was, and it was good. Day four, let there be sun, moon, and stars. And there was, and it was good. The point, there's, it's very formulaic, right? It's not this, this drama. It's not this action movie. It's just formulaic. It's boom, bada, boom, bada, boom, bada, boom. The point is, God creates the entire universe in six days with no resistance whatsoever. That's a big deal. Like, I can't fix a leak under my sink in six hours without struggle. And God created all of this with hardly any effort. He just spoke it into existence. And this is set directly in contrast with the literature, the creation literature of Genesis day. In the ancient Babylonian myths, you know how they explain creation? They say there were these gods and they were fighting together. There was the, the chaotic sea god named Apsu and Tiamat and they were battling and then there was Marduk, who took up his sword and sliced Tiamat open at the mouth and took the top half of her head and put it in the sky and the bottom half of her head and put it in the water. It's this huge battle scene with all these gods fighting against one another. Resistance and struggle. Not our story. Our story says God doesn't have to battle and struggle. What God wants happens. The sovereignty of God. Let's go to Abraham really quickly here. God says, we've got a problem in the world. A huge problem. Everything's run amok. Everything's gone astray. Everyone's killing one another. This is what we see in Genesis 6. He's flooded everything. The floodwaters come down. And Noah does the same thing that Adam does. And God goes, all right, how am I going to fix this problem? You know how he fixes it? He goes, I'm going to start a great big family. Not a formula. Not a program. Not even a small group. Not a computer program, not virtual reality, not the internet, not money, not an economic system. He goes, I'm going to fix this problem with a family. What does that tell you? It starts with us. Now, who am I going to pick to start this great big family? I got just the people, Abraham and Sarah. What's ironic about that? They can't have kids. Think of the angriest person you know. 
And God's like, we have an anger problem in the world. I need to fix this. Who am I going to pick? That guy. You know, that's the story of Paul, by the way. I know what we need. People are stubborn, and we need people who have faith and believe to fix this thing. Who are we going to pick? Let's pick Peter and Thomas as our people. Not only, okay, so Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. Why can't they have kids? There's two reasons. One is that they're super old. They're in their 90s. And isn't that weird? Like, because Abraham's like, man, if I take Sarah to Egypt, Pharaoh's going to think she's sexy. It's like, <laughs> there must have been something in like the water back then. Uh, try some of that skin cream Sarah's been using. They're super old, and she's infertile. She can't have kids. So in other words, the context is doubly impossible. And remember, when God goes to Abraham and Sarah as his messengers, he goes, all right, y'all, when I'm going to come back in a year, and you're going to have a baby. And Sarah's listening while she's making food in the kitchen. And what does she do when she hears him say that? She laughs out loud. <laughs> right. Matt, you're telling me that God can redeem the world through a little tiny church called Foundry in Flowood, Mississippi? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Because he's God. And we're not. Just like Joseph says. He picks the couple where it's doubly impossible. I'm going to make a great big family. They're the ones. If we just understood how big he was. I've got to close because I'm over time. One of the biggest things that he does is he takes this corrupt family, <laughs> Jacob. That's the guy. What? His name means struggle. Yeah, he's the one. That's the guy I'm going to use. He's so big and so powerful that he uses such evil. He uses such evil. Think about how evil this story is, this, these brothers are. And even Joseph himself is. And he redeems the whole world through the evil not through the good, but through the evil. You're like, wait a minute. We've seen this before. It's called Jesus and the cross. The greatest injustice that's ever happened across the course of human history. The only innocent one nailed to a cross, betrayed by his best friends. The greatest injustice in the world, God uses it and justifies everybody. What? That's how big he is. He's not just big that he can make good things out of good things. That's one thing, right? He's so big that he can make the best things out of the worst things, which means in your life, the worst thing that has happened to you is God's greatest opportunity to do the best thing that he can do through you. Did y'all hear me? The worst thing that happened to you is the best thing that happened to you, according to God's economy. Let him redeem it. It's not just about what he does for us. It's not just about what he does in us, but it's about what he wants to do through us because he's sovereign, he's huge, and he's good. We all have things that we're holding on to that's preventing us from moving and letting God doing something through us. I'm inviting you to lay those things down now. If you don't have the courage to do it, you have a helper. His name's the Holy Spirit, and he can give you the courage to do it. Say, Lord, I'm just not ready to lay it down but I want to be ready. 
the Holy Spirit can give you the desire to lay it down. Are you willing to lay it down this morning? Guess what? He's trustworthy. You can trust him. You can let go. How many of you want to just let go this morning? I want to let go. No, I'm not going to sing Let It Go, Elsa. Actually, Cody, would you come up? <laughs> We're going to have people that's going to pray. I'm going to invite you guys are going to sing a song. Is that right? And I'll be up front. Stacy will be up front. Someone else is going to be up front. Hannah's going to be up front. And if you want to stay where you are and pray in your heart, listen, that's great too. Because the disciples said, all we have are a couple loaves and fish. He goes, that's enough. That'll do. All I have is a mustard seed of faith and courage. He can work with that.